welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. So today I'm really excited to welcome co-founder and CTO of CASA, um, helping people improve their self-sovereignty and uh, allow for the self-custody of Bitcoin. Welcome, Jameson. Great to be here. So you describe yourself as a Bitcoin philosopher laureate, professional cypherpunk and advocate for Bitcoin. And you describe the kind of work that you're doing as, as building technology that powers individuals, individuals being this kind of operative word, um, what I would describe as for a more uh, citizen user centric internet. And importantly, you're, you're working uh, both at CASA and beyond around the evolution of Bitcoin. You've contributed loads of stuff to Bitcoin and open source from Statoshi, Physical Attack Log, Bitcoin Savings Club, Bitcoin Savings Plan, and even the U.S. Marshall's Bitcoin Auction Tracker. It's great to have you on the show. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on is, at least um, from the outside, you're the archetypal Bitcoiner. So I want to explore the kind of cypherpunk ethos and origins of of crypto and uh, what I've seen you refer to as the Bitcoin decade. You did an interesting talk uh, called Bitcoin Decade Falling Forward. As a Bitcoiner and startup founder, I think you also represent a founder type that is quite unique to crypto and, and certainly Bitcoin, um, who is somebody that is primarily creating a business to further the cause of a protocol. Not necessarily, although I guess hopefully, just to get rich as a startup founder. So you're kind of not you're not starting from a point of being neutral to your technology stack, which would be uh, perhaps conventional in a normal startup world. You're also a kind of hardcore security guy, but at CASA working at this intersection of physical hardware and software, I know you've kind of moved more towards the software piece now. So kind of making this this digital world physical. Uh, and I think you're you know, somebody really championing the importance of Bitcoin and of course exploring the potential, its potential through the Lightning Network. So normally at, at this stage, I would kind of summarize somebody's history and background and the kind of origin story leading up to their time in 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 blockchain and crypto but as a i guess cypherpunk uh, as you might expect you, you have no linkedin profile so i couldn't find out much more about your background uh, prior to bitgo and i guess this is tied to a famous article now in the wall street journal about you called living off the grid how to vanish uh, in 15 not so easy steps so um it would it would be great to understand you know why you've gone dark or you're you're off off the grid and um if there is anything that you can share about your background to give us context to your journey as a founder 
Sure. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I, I would agree. I'm probably not the archetypal entrepreneur in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't go out looking for a business to build. It was rather when I decided to pivot my career into the Bitcoin space and more broadly into the uh, personal sovereignty and security space that was more of an ideological transition for me. And I see, you know, the companies that I've worked for, the companies that I'm building as a means to an end that, you know, as much as you spoke about the amazing aspects of open source software, and I am a big proponent of that, I think there are some types of things and services that simply can't be built as free open source software. So that is where the, the companies come into play, you know, just another type of self-organization that I think allows us to incentivize people in ways that are hard to do in the open source software space. So my background, I'm a computer scientist by trade. I spent the first decade of my career actually doing pretty much the exact opposite of what I advocate for now. I, I was actually a back-end infrastructure engineer at a large online marketing company, and I was doing uh, cloud-scale analysis of raw tracking data in marketing databases to essentially help marketers better target their customers, you know, better increase their return on their investment with our marketing analytics software. And uh, this was not a particularly interesting uh, idea to me. It wasn't something I was ideologically committed to. It just happened to provide some interesting technical you know, scaling challenges. And once I got interested in Bitcoin, you know, I started doing some open source side projects and about a year and a half after starting those projects and, and slowly drifting away of what I was thinking about uh, every day and every night, uh, I realized that, you know, enough venture capital had come into the space that I could just get paid to, to do that full time. And that's when I made that transition to start working at BitGo and really began my uh, career in the security space. And I, uh, for those that aren't aware, BitGo was a multi-seek enterprise wallet. So very related to the work you're doing now at CASA. So you co-founded CASA in 2018 with Jeremy Welch, who also studied philosophy. So I think there's an interesting link there between you describing yourself as a philosopher laureate and uh, co-founding a company with somebody that I guess majored in, in philosophy. So you were backed by Boost VC, Adam Draper's Boost VC, and then Fabric Ventures here in the UK. Yes, uh, we, we had uh, a few you know, early seed investors, I think also Lara Hippo um, and Compound uh, got in there pretty early and uh, have you know, helped us get through that, that pre-product stage. And you know, once we got out into the real world and started getting real customers in, you know, that's when things started taking off and our brand recognition has really shot up a lot over the past year. A lot of that was due to the hardware Bitcoin Lightning Node product that we put out, but all along our focus has been on this uh, key management issue. And in fact, it's it's kind of weird being in this niche cutting edge space because I'm I'm watching all these different teams that are going out there and building very um, you know 
envelope pushing type of software, you know, creating completely new types of, of user interactions that, that they can perform in this system. But the entire time that I've been in this space, I've been working on very boring, uh, simple private key management. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's one of the most basic aspects of these systems, but the reason that I keep focusing on it is because I think that we've still got a long way to go and that if we want the rest of the things that are being built on top of these systems to actually be usable and get to a mainstream level of adoption, then we need to get the basics right. Yeah, and I know you feel very strongly that this kind of technology is fundamental to fully realizing the benefit of Bitcoin beyond kind of just speculation. So um, what is this kind of theme uh, around philosophy or, or, or I guess within the founding team of CASA? And is it kind of tied to this idea that, you know, Bitcoin is a, is a belief system as much as a technology? Yes. Yeah, so there is a wide variety of memes that are perpetuated in this space. I actually, I just wrote a blog post, I think a week or two ago, about all of the memes that we use to sort of self-reinforce some of the ideological points of the system. But, you know, the fundamental ones are things like, you know, don't trust verify, or this idea of trustlessness. Um, it's really the idea that you can be sovereign unto yourself into how you're interacting with the system and by not relying on a third party you are then able to essentially do whatever you want without asking permission is that is the permissionless nature the censorship resistance aspect of no one can stop you because you're not reliant upon anyone therefore there's no gatekeepers but in reality there's always going to be some levels of trust because what we run into is that no one has the time or the skills to verify everything uh, from a security perspective, you know, all the way from software that where most people are not programmers, they can't read the code, um, even if it is available to them, all the way down to the hardware level where, you know, almost nobody can verify hardware, even if it's open hardware, which is also uh, pretty rare in and of itself. So the question that it really comes down to in my mind is how do we build systems where we can help people improve their security posture and minimize trust as much as possible while admitting that we can never fully eliminate it, but doing this in a way where then the user has control of the most important things, which are, you know, the sensitive data, these private keys. And then we build the rest of the software, the rest of the layers of abstraction on top of it, just to, to make it easy for the user. So, you know, one, one meme that we've kind of started propagating ourselves at Casa is, you know, we're not here to hold your keys. We're here to hold your hand. So how do we help people without becoming a potential point of failure ourselves? That's really, I think, one of the trickiest aspects. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, the, the art or the power of mimetics in the crypto space. I don't want to go too much into the politics of within and around the community of Bitcoin, because I know you get asked about that all the time. But as a founder, I think it's interesting to understand 
you know, the challenges of innovating within this kind of, uh, within a belief system in a way. I know you and your family were famously swatted by other elements of the community. As a founder in Bitcoin and trying to innovate in Bitcoin, what are the challenges there? It is uh, fascinating uh, in the sense that, you know, you can come into conflict potentially with people in your own organization, uh, with other organizations in the space, even outside of just Bitcoin ideology. There's also the uh, cybersecurity in general space where you often have different security experts and organizations that are kind of sniping at each other on a regular basis. You know, it's an adversarial environment from a variety of different perspectives. And the, uh, you know, the incident that happened to me, as, as far as I'm aware, it was not due to ideology. It was more a result of the volatility of the space and, you know, these hype cycles and the fact that I went from having very few people paying attention to me to having hundreds of thousands of people paying attention to me. And it's just sort of a, a law of numbers type of game where eventually if you have enough people paying attention to you, there's going to be a few of them in there that are going to be a little unhinged or going to be willing to do things that you would not expect the, the average person would be willing to do. And I think that that is actually helped me transform my life. You know, I basically burned down my entire like legal existence and started over again from scratch. And it was a project for me. It was a journey. I, I was trying to take things to the extreme just so that I could better understand like what really is the state of privacy in this space or in, in, in the real world, what can you do? Uh, if you want to protect yourself uh, from these type of elements. And the, the internet in general is an adversarial environment. And that's one of the things that I realized is I've been advocating for Bitcoin for a long time because it creates the opportunity for asymmetric defense. Uh, basically, cryptography in general allows normal humans to create a level of defensive capability for their data that has never really been possible before this modern era. And now as we start to digitize other things, we can potentially also protect those things as assets with this uh, asymmetric capability. But the flip side of that is that we've also created these uh, fairly anonymous systems where when someone is able to, for example, place a phone call uh, completely anonymously to your local law enforcement department and say the magic words that get them to send out the SWAT team, what you have there is an asymmetric attack where someone is essentially only spending probably a few dollars worth of resources to then get potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayer resources deployed as an attack against a specific target. So, you know, this is kind of the, the craziness that the technology and you know, exponential change is causing in the world is that some of these existing systems are having trouble basically uh, catching up. And, and that's where 
unfortunately, a lot of the onus comes down onto each and every one of us to keep up with all of these changes. Otherwise, we potentially become vulnerable to them. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the big value propositions of CASA is that, you know, we are specifically staying on top of all of the changes in Bitcoin and cybersecurity in general. And our customers can rely on us to build things and to inform them of the important changes so that they don't have to you know, be focused on that. They can go about their lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to think that, you know, what happened to you and, and more generally what might be going on in uh, the crypto space is perhaps a precursor to what might become more prevalent across the internet. And of course, as you say, it's not specific to, to the Bitcoin space. You know, people get swatted all the time. For, for various reasons. So uh, hopefully uh, that story doesn't put people off entering the space, but it is interesting, depending at what level you're operating in this industry, if you, if you can call it that, that this is a, an aspect that you kind of have to deal with, with a certain level of uh, fame. So you could be working on any number of things. Why is it that making Bitcoin accessible or I don't know if you would call this kind of the productization of Bitcoin. Why is that so important to you? Well, you know, it's actually a, a great environment uh, for us to be talking about this because what we're really talking about is power dynamics. And the reason why I originally got interested in Bitcoin there were several of them, you know, there was, of course, the computer science aspect of, oh, this is a really cool technology and it's solving some problems I haven't thought about before. But at a more philosophical level, as I started thinking about money as just an abstract concept and the idea that our money is essentially defined by a tiny you know, elite group of people who convene behind closed doors and make decisions without our input, I felt like applying you know, open source collaborative principles to the idea of money seemed like a logical thing where, you know, Maybe it would result in the quote-unquote ideal money. At the very least, I believe what we've seen over the past decade is that when you apply this type of principle, you could call it a governance model or lack of governance model, to building out a monetary system, it seems to me that at the very least it results in the least amount of harm or the least amount of harmful changes being made to the system. So you no longer have a small group of people that can make changes to the system that perhaps benefit them or their friends or other cronies while causing harm and, you know, being at the, the detriment of the, the greater community and ecosystem as a whole. So, you know, as we try to build out this ecosystem I just want more and more people to be able to take advantage of it. And, you know, that will grow the network effect that will make the entire network stronger. This is a numbers game. And if we really want to compete against, you know, first world order currencies, then we need to be able to, you know, make that value proposition available to people. At least in the, in the very early days, I was evangelizing Bitcoin to friends, family, and coworkers. It was a really hard sell. And 
quite frankly, that's because those of us in first world countries have pretty decent financial infrastructure access. So it's kind of ironically easier to quote unquote sell the idea of Bitcoin to someone who lives in a country with terrible financial infrastructure, someone who has experienced hyperinflation. They just get it. It's not hard to explain why Bitcoin is preferable than an existing you know, central bank controlled currency. But on the, the first world side, you have to get more abstract and theoretical and pose you know, scenarios that uh, some people may find ludicrous because they've never experienced them. But you know, now we're starting to experience some interesting uh, scenarios here in the United States. So I think, you know, reality is, is coming around. Yeah. I think it, I think that whole, whole thing is uh, the whole paradigm is certainly mainstreaming right now. So you, you mentioned open source again, and, you know, I think on the one hand, you've clearly contributed a lot of open source for the public good. On the other hand, you know, you are now obviously building a business how do you balance the debate internally within a startup around what should be proprietary and, and what should be open source? Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because we have people from time to time uh, push back on us of like, why don't you open source this or that? And, um, you know, we have open sourced all the stuff around our Bitcoin Lightning node product. Uh, we did that, you know, well before we stopped actually selling and shipping them. And um, once we did stop selling and shipping them, we then completely opened up the like how to build your own from scratch uh, just to, to make it more available to people. On the, the key management side, it becomes tricky because, well, there's multiple ways that you can look at open source projects. Not everyone open sources code for the same reasons. Uh, for us, because we're a security company, it would be more from the security perspective than, for example, the like community building or open governance perspective. Obviously, we're a, co a company, and the the final say is going to come down to me and other you know C-level people at the company about what direction we're taking things. But from a security perspective, our app, for example, is on uh, iOS and Android. And those platforms actually don't provide ways for you to uh, verify the code that is running on them. So, um, you know, we've had this discussion a number of times of should we open source our mobile app? And ultimately it comes down to, well, we could, and it might make some people feel better, but it's just going to be a feel good thing because they're not going to be able to take our code and, and build it and compare it to the code that is deployed out to those app stores and running on their phones. So instead we took a slightly different perspective and said, well, while you can't verify the code that is running on your phone, what you can do is follow these instructions that we actually send to every user when they set up their wallet of how do you set up a sort of mirror watch only wallet using completely open source software that you can then use to verify that it is, you know, creating the, the exact same deposit addresses and basically, you know, following the rules of the protocol that you would expect that, you know, CASA is not malicious and trying to trick you into you know, sending your money to uh, a third party. So as a security guy, I mean, do, do you think that tokenization allows for more secure open source 
systems? Could you think of Bitcoin as like a massive uh, bug bounty, right? If normally a hack would mean you would get access to some data, but hacking in this context means you can access money that you can then, anonymous money or pseudonymous money that you can very quickly move out. Do you think tokenization is a benefit to open source generally and open source systems? So this, you know, comes down to, I think, adversarial environments. Uh, if we're talking about open source from a security perspective, you know, the whole idea is that by really laying your cards on the table, you allow anyone to more easily attack whatever you've built and, and find weaknesses in it. When you are doing this in the context of money or assets or some sort of digital bearer value where an attacker would be able to essentially abscond with that value if they find the right bug, then you have created an extremely strong incentive where you know the, the system is providing its own bug bounty. And that seems to work pretty well, but there are, of course, examples otherwise where some of these systems may be so tiny and no one's paying attention to them, then they could go along and operate for a period of time before someone bothers to actually look at them closely enough. And in some cases, that means, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars being put into the system uh, before it gets taken as a bug bounty. So it's it's some interesting trade-offs to, to see, you know, throughout the history of these systems of how that works. And the result, of course, is they're all learning experiences, and then hopefully people will be more careful about how they deploy and scale up these types of systems in the future. So you mentioned earlier, when you first launched, you were kind of doing both the hardware and the software piece and uh, trying to innovate with the Lightning Network nodes. And I know you had a lot of learnings from that. Can, can you kind of talk us through that journey? Because you were obviously one of the first startups out there that were trying to, to do this at scale. Yeah, so the very high level uh, mission at CASA is to help people improve their personal sovereignty. So the, the first obvious way for us to do that was to help people self-custody, help them manage their private keys. Uh, this is very sensitive data where you need to make sure no one can get those private keys that is not supposed to have them. And even more importantly, we found you, know, you need to protect the user from their own ignorance or their own mistakes. Uh, you have to realize that users are human, they will occasionally do stupid things, and we need to build these systems in a resilient and robust way so that a single mistake is not going to be catastrophic. But um, on the hardware side, that was what we kind of saw as the second step forward. So first you secure your keys, uh, next step is that you actually validate the transactions that you're receiving to make sure that no one's defrauding you. You know, this gives you that next level of trustlessness that you're receiving actual Bitcoin uh, and not some uh, fake transaction that somebody made up and, and uh, you know, just had appear in your software wallet. 
So this was supposed to be the logical continuation of that. Since Lightning was also coming out at the same time, we thought that was a great add-on because it also you know, speaks towards the scalability of Bitcoin through second layer protocols. And essentially, you know, we, we went from doing, like I was saying, this basic key management stuff to now doing the more cutting edge uh, lightning network stuff and lightning network is, is just progressing so quickly the pace of development is so fast new things are coming down the line on basically a monthly basis it was very challenging for us from uh, from a number of different perspectives we knew that it would be challenging to have a hardware device that would be operating inside of a network that we had no insight into, no control over. So obviously people plug in into their networks and we, we found all kinds of fun, crazy edge cases that would cause the networking stuff to not work for one reason or another. So there was a much higher you know, support load on that because of the much higher level of variables and unforeseen situations. Also, like I said, the development pace was so high, you know, there was a lot more load on our own developers just to keep up with what was coming down the line. And then eventually what we realized is that while we had been trying to build two different products that were meant to eventually merge into this, you know, greater idea of personal sovereignty, our actual customer base ended up being different. Uh, we ended up really having more of a divergent customer base where the folks who were interested in that private key management were one segment and then the folks that were interested in the Bitcoin lightning node stuff were another. And this latter segment was more of the hobbyist, enthusiast, tinkerer, technical type, and they really wanted to get under the hood of this node and, you know, do stuff on the command line, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas CASA's ethos is to make things as simple as possible and to, you know, abstract away these complexities. So there ended up being a fair amount of friction there due to just kind of different requirements and expectations between these different customer segments. And eventually we, we decided that, you know, we were looking at the business and the, the private key management was just doing a lot better from a business perspective. The main reason for that is because we're just talking about much more value. This is people potentially needing to secure their life savings. Whereas on the lightning node side of things, we're talking about playing around with maybe a few hundred or, or a few thousand dollars at most, because this is meant to be a more retail payment application type of thing. So there was just so much more value and need for security for your life savings versus making retail payments that after a year and a half or so, it just became pretty obvious that we needed to focus on the former and we can always come back to the latter as the technology continues to mature. So as a co-founder, i.e., you know, an entrepreneur working with other entrepreneurs, when you hit an inflection point like this with such a mission-driven business, how do you... And I follow the rationale for the argument for the pathway that you took, because clearly that's where the kind of growth customer segment is. How do you work through something like that as a, as a team? And I don't know, you know, to what extent there was a divergence of, a, of opinion within that team against those segments. Um, 
you know, I, I don't think that there was uh, too much contention around our kind of analysis of what we were seeing from our users. You know, obviously the, the engineers that we had working on the lightning stuff uh, were disappointed that we didn't want to continue it for the foreseeable future. It's one of those moments where, you know, you, you have to make a business decision uh, kind of despite, I guess, your ideology. And, you know, as much as I would love to keep putting more and more resources into the lightning side uh, at this point, at least from a, a business standpoint, I think it, it makes more sense to, to wait for the rest of the ecosystem to catch up rather than for us to try to push that particular piece of the ecosystem forward. There's still so much to do on the private key management side that I wouldn't really feel comfortable dumping a lot of resources into the cutting edge stuff until I felt like you know we had done everything that there was to be done on uh, the simple private key management. Yeah, and I guess you know coming back to that idea that you know you're representative of a founder, a type of founder, and a type of startup that is quite unique to this space. You know, one that is really committed to furthering the protocol. I guess this is a, a tension that's going to be quite common across startups in this space, and quite unusual to a, a typical kind of founder dilemma. So you were talking around you know, this idea that you're kind of doubling down on a solution that allowed somebody to secure a significant portion of their their wealth. And I know you developed an inheritance solution, which is always something that's kind of bugged me, is as increasing amounts of wealth becomes digital, if you follow the logic that increasingly more people will want to self-custody, then, you know, how, how does that wealth pass through generations? How do you see and understand digital wealth, you know, more generally than Bitcoin? Obviously, the, it, it can kind of extend to areas like NFTs and, and gaming skins. How, how do you see that growth? And I guess you, that's your market, right? So how do you kind of size that market? Right. I mean, Bitcoin is the beginning. I, I do believe that Bitcoin will continue to be kind of the king of digital money for the foreseeable future. But our thesis is ultimately that, like I said, cryptography provides us with an asymmetric level of defense and that we should desire to be able to leverage this technology to secure as many valuable aspects of our lives as possible whether that is just around your personal information, whether that is around your identity management, whether it is uh, you know, authentication and access to various online and even real world properties. And then finally, you know, digital assets themselves, Bitcoin and tokenized whatever you can imagine. It, it seems obvious to me that as this entire ecosystem continues to progress, that we will see more and more of these things, uh, ownership, authentication, identity, access, really control to be uh, digitized and secured via private keys. And so that is why we are building a 
you know, key management platform for normal humans. And I, I think that's one of the, the greatest downfalls to sort of the, the open source development of this space in general is that it's a lot of nerds that are building for themselves, you know, for other nerds that in many cases, the user experience, uh, the interfaces have not been very accessible for people who haven't climbed up this great steep learning curve to actually understand all the things that are happening under the hood of whatever the technology is that they're trying to use. So, you know, potential market size is enormous, you know, much like how you could potentially size the market of Bitcoin to be practically the entire, you know, global money space. Any of these other things, anything that is owned, whether it is a, uh, you know, publicly registered ownership uh, of an asset like, you know, land, vehicles, real estate, etc. Putting those things into publicly verifiable ledgers make a lot of sense. And then any other asset that you would find valuable to be able to prove ownership or transfer ownership directly between two people without a third party. I mean, that is the, the fundamental value proposition, I think, of you know, blockchain systems, public ledger, decentralized network systems. But of course, there's a million different variables that go into you know, attributes of all those networks that, that resulted in you know, a lot of the, the strife and drama that you uh, are so interested in avoiding and we don't have time to go into. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so I know you did a presentation recently on DeFi and I'd be interested to understand why you think a lot of that innovation to date has happened on Ethereum and not Bitcoin and not necessarily from a technological perspective but is there something different about those two communities as to why that innovation has happened on Ethereum and do you do you think they're fundamentally at odds in any way? Yeah, I mean, the, the f interesting thing about these networks is that, you know, they create their own communities. You know, it comes down to mimetics is, is that, you know, each of these networks has some uh, fundamental attributes and beliefs usually that, and you know, a lot of this goes actually back in history of, uh, you know, Vitalik Buterin, who was one of the founders of Ethereum, you know, he was originally doing Bitcoin stuff and he just wanted to do things that he found to be too challenging or he felt like uh, the Bitcoin ethos would not accept to, you know, make changes to the Bitcoin protocol to do those things. So, you know, ultimately, these are all voluntary systems. You have two choices when you're operating in any of these systems. One of them is you know, voice to say, hey, I propose that we do these things, make these changes, uh, support X, Y, or Z. And if voice fails, then your only other option is exit. And of course, we have seen many different uh, people and entities uh, end up choosing the exit option uh, from not only Bitcoin, but from other networks and, you know, ending up with forks of forks of forks of forks. Uh, it really is a fascinating evolution to watch this happen. You know, there are many parallels with things like religion, for example, you know, in various uh, sects 
branching off from different uh, religions over uh, history. But, you know, one of the differences, I think, between like Ethereum and Bitcoin is that Ethereum wants to be as many things as possible. It wants to be a more general platform. You know, I sometimes refer to it as a kitchen sink protocol. You know, they, they want for you to be able to build anything that you can imagine, essentially. And, you know, there, there are pros and cons to that. Um, from a security perspective, I think it becomes a nightmare. And, you know, Bitcoin, I think, is more conservative in security consciousness or security conscious and will prefer to say, no, you can't do all of those things. Or if you want to do them, you have to put a lot more effort into figuring out how to do them. So, for example, with Ethereum, it has much more complex smart contracting and scripting functionality where essentially you can write these complex operations that then everyone on the network will run those operations and will verify that they uh, performed and create the output as expected. On Bitcoin, the ethos is more that you should use the blockchain as little as possible. And if you're performing complex computations, you don't need to have everybody else on the network perform those computations. Instead, all you need to do is perform the computation yourself and then post a proof onto the blockchain that is easily verifiable. Now, that ends up being a lot more complicated, at least up to, to today, but I think that you know we're seeing more tools being built to make it more developer-friendly for people to build more complex stuff off-chain. But you know, these are kind of fundamental design principle differences, and uh, there are many different trade-offs that we also don't have time to go into, but it, it is one of those things where it's just gonna, it's fascinating to see how it's gonna continue to evolve over time. Yeah, well, look, it's been great having you on the podcast today. And, you know, I think that the work you're doing is incredibly important, uh, not just to Bitcoin, but to the wider crypto space, uh, as you say. And, and more importantly than that, what it represents around self-sovereignty and self-custody. And, and I definitely subscribe to the idea that we're starting with this kind of high value asset, you know, money. But increasingly, we're going to be looking at all this infrastructure can be leveraged for self-custody of data and, and all the, anything else that's associated to that. So it's been great having you on and thanks for all your work in the space. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.